I'm Elizabeth Flattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by my heritage colleagues, Jason Sneed and Amy Swearer. Welcome back, both of you, to SCOTUS 101. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be part of, I think, the first triumvirate of SCOTUS 101. <laughs> so before we get into what's going on at the court today, we are still selling SCOTUS 101 mugs. So show your love for the podcast and get a limited edition mug while they last. You can get them at shop.heritage.org. And listeners, we're offering a 30% off discount code and free shipping. You want to enter four bananas. That's all one word, the number four, and bananas, all lowercase, at checkout to get your discount. All right, now on to the show. The court added an extra day to its schedule this week, releasing four more decisions on Friday morning. So there are now only 12 cases left. So we're going to briefly talk about uh, the four cases that came out today. First up is Flowers versus Mississippi. This is a 7-2 decision written by Justice Kavanaugh in which the court reversed the Mississippi Supreme Court in the case of Curtis Flowers, a black man who has been tried six times for the 1996 murder of four people at a furniture store in a small town in Mississippi. The majority held that the trial court erred when it found that the prosecutor's peremptory strike of black prospective jurors was not motivated by discriminatory intent. By way of background, before a criminal trial begins, the judge and lawyers will ask prospective jurors questions to determine if they should be selected for the jury. The judge will strike prospective jurors uh, who demonstrate that they would have difficulty being impartial, and the lawyers from both sides may exercise what are called peremptory strikes to remove prospective jurors without an explanation. But in a 1986 Supreme Court decision called Bafton versus Kentucky, the court held that peremptory strikes may not be based on race. So fast forward to Curtis Flowers. He has been tried six times for the murder of four people at a furniture store where he previously worked. And the state Supreme Court overturned his conviction and death sentence following several of those trials for prosecutorial misconduct. Throughout the six trials, the prosecutor, District Attorney Doug Evans, used peremptory strikes to remove the majority of African Americans from the pool of prospective jurors. Flowers was convicted and sentenced to death following the sixth trial, and the Mississippi Supreme Court affirmed his conviction, finding that the district attorney offered race-neutral reasons for striking five out of six black prospective jurors in that trial. But writing for the majority, Justice Kavanaugh found that the circumstances of Curtis Flowers' six trials supported the claim that the prosecutor impermissibly discriminated in jury selection based on race. These circumstances included the fact that the, the district attorney struck 41 out of 42 black prospective jurors. Justice Kavanaugh emphasized that the court's decision, quote, breaks no new legal ground and was simply enforcing Bafton by applying it to the extraordinary facts of this case. Justice Alito concurred, saying that he would have had no trouble affirming the conviction had Flowers been prosecuted in a larger community by a new prosecutor. But he joined the majority here, given the, quote, unique combinations and circumstances presented. Justice Thomas dissented, joined in part by Justice Gorsuch. Thomas wrote that the majority distorted the record and that Curtis Flowers did not actually put on evidence of racial discrimination. In Thomas's view, all but one of the prosecutor's peremptory strikes were race neutral. Thomas also argued, and this was without Justice Gorsuch, 
that Batson, the 1986 decision, was wrongly decided because it focuses on, quote, the possibility that a juror will misperceive a peremptory strike as a threat to his dignity rather than on the fairness of trials for the defendant whose liberty is at stake. So now the case has been sent back to the state court. If you want to learn more about this case, there's a great podcast called In the Dark, and the second season is all about the prosecution of Curtis Flowers, which has been going on for more than 20 years. So with that, Jason, do you want to talk about the Rehife decision? Uh, Sure. So we have Rehife v. United States, which is a 7-2 decision by Justice Breyer, joined by uh, Justices Roberts, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, in which the court reversed and remanded an 11th Circuit decision upholding the conviction of uh, Respondent Rehife on charges that he violated uh, two federal firearm statutes. Those statutes, sections 922G and 924A2 of Title 18, bar uh, specific individuals, including illegal aliens, from possessing firearms and make anyone who knowingly violates that provision subject to up to 10 years imprisonment. Rehaif came to the United States on a non-immigrant student visa, but was subsequently dismissed from his college on account of poor grades. He nevertheless remained in the country and at one point uh, went to a firing range where he shot a weapon. The government's prosecution followed. This case, though, is not a firearms case per se, but rather uh, deals with the question of whether the government had to prove uh, not only that Rehaif knew he was in the country illegally, but that he also possessed a firearm. At trial, the jury was instructed that the government did not need to prove that Rehaif knew he was in the country illegally. But Justice Breyer, writing for the majority, found that prosecutors did have to prove that. There is a long-standing presumption that Congress intended that defendants must possess a culpable state of mind regarding, quote, each of the statutory elements that criminalize otherwise innocent conduct, and the court found no convincing reason to depart from that presumption. The statute in question, Section 922G, has several elements, and the term knowingly is normally read, quote, as applying to all the subsequently listed elements of the crime. Those elements include the defendant's status as an illegal alien and the question of his possession of a firearm. The government's appeal to the maxim ignorance of the law is no excuse does not normally apply where a defendant's mistaken impression about a collateral legal question causes him to misunderstand his conduct's significance, thereby negating an element of the crime. So uh, in this particular case, the government had to prove that uh, Rehaif knew he was in the country illegally. Justice Alito wrote a dissent joined by Justice Thomas in which he argued that the court's decision, quote, casually overturns the long-established interpretation of an important criminal statute. This reinterpretation will make it significantly harder to convict persons falling into some of these categories and opens the floodgates of litigation, creating a substantial burden on lower courts. The majority, Alito contends, did not ultimately rely on the text but on its, quote, own guess about congressional intent. Interesting case. (laughs) Amy, uh, how about the perhaps less interesting case uh, out of North Carolina? I don't know. This this may be one of the most exciting cases we've had this term. So this case is North Carolina Department of Revenue uh, v. Kastner Family Trust. So this was a unanimous decision written by Sotomayor in which the Supreme Court affirmed the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision that taxing a trust based solely on the in-state residency of trust beneficiaries violates the 14th Amendment. Um, So a man created a trust in New York State for the benefit of his children. The trustee who retained exclusive control of the allocation and timing of those trust distributions divided the trust into sub-trusts for each of the children. And then one of those uh, children who was 
part of the subtrust, moved to North Carolina. Uh, the state looked at that trust and said, we're going to tax the assets. And so for the tax years 2005 through 2008, uh, North Carolina did, in fact, tax those assets for about $1.3 million. And it did so under a state law allowing taxation of any trust that is, quote, for the benefit of a state resident. Uh, so the trustee sued in North Carolina state court and argued that that tax violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, the North Carolina courts decided that the beneficiary's residence alone in North Carolina was insufficient to establish a connection between that trust and the state. Um, so the Supreme Court agreed with that conclusion and said that under its precedent, the 14th Amendment requires a definite link or a minimum connection between the state and what it seeks to tax. Um, so the court also noted that if it had been the case, say, that that any of those assets had been distributed, uh, any of that trust income had been distributed to an in-state resident, or if the trust administrator was located in the state, uh, that would have been sufficient, but none of those connections existed here. Um, so not only had the North Carolina beneficiary not received any trust distributions, she actually didn't have a right to demand and wasn't ever guaranteed to receive any of those distributions in the future. Uh, there was one concurrence written by Alito, joined by Roberts and Gorsuch, uh, and they would emphasize that the court was only applying existent precedent to a very specific set of facts. They wanted to make sure that it was clear that they weren't resolving any points that had been left unresolved by prior decisions. They weren't reconsidering any of that. They were simply taking what already existed and applying it to this specific case, and that was all. A fascinating case. <laughs> and then rounding out, the, the fourth decision that came out today is Nick versus Township of Scott, Pennsylvania. This is a 5-4 decision written by Chief Justice Roberts, joined by Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, in which the court overruled a 1985 decision requiring property owners to exhaust takings claims in state court before they may bring a claim in federal court. This case involves a challenge to a town ordinance requiring all cemeteries on public or private land to be accessible to the public during the day and authorizing enforcement agents to inspect private property to look for possible cemeteries. The ordinance provides for up to $600 in fines for violation. Enforcement agents stormed Rosemary Nix to 90-acre property and found stones that they decided are grave markers. Ms. Nick disagrees, and she filed a complaint in state court for a taking of her property. The state court wouldn't rule on her claim until the township filed an enforcement action against her, which it didn't do. So Ms. Nick took her case to federal court. But the federal district court dismissed her claim as unripe, citing Williamson County Regional Planning Commission versus Hamilton Bank, a 1985 Supreme Court decision that requires property owners to first seek and be denied compensation for a taking in state court before bringing a Section 1983 action in federal court, but no longer. The court overruled Williamson County, making clear that in order to vindicate a Fifth Amendment violation of the takings clause, a property owner is not required to exhaust state court remedies first. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice Roberts explained that Williamson County ended up depriving property owners of the ability to have their day in federal court because a state court's resolution of a claim for just compensation under state law, would preclude suit in federal court. Roberts wrote that this was an unjustifiable burden on takings plaintiffs, conflicts with the rest of our takings jurisprudence, and must be overruled. In the dissent, which was joined by Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor, J. 
Justice Kagan complained that this ruling will require government to pay compensation at the moment it takes private property for public purposes or in advance. But Chief Justice Roberts explained that this holding does not mean government action or regulation may not proceed in the absence of contemporaneous compensation. It simply means the violation is complete at the time of the taking and pursuit of a remedy in federal court need not await any subsequent state action. Kagan also wrote in her dissent that the consequences of overruling Williamson County will be, quote, channeling a mass of quintessentially local cases involving complex state law issues into federal courts. And she bemoaned the majority's transgressing the usual principles of stare decisis to reach this decision. Kagan has become quite the cheerleader for stare decisis as of late. And in fact, she, she closed her dissent uh, quoting uh, something that Justice Breyer recently wrote, which was that, quote, today's decision can cause can only cause one to wonder which cases the court will overrule next. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote a concurring opinion, uh, writing separately to note that he does not understand the majority's opinion to foreclose the application of ordinary remedial principles taking claims and related common law tort claims such as trespass. So this is a big win for property rights. Uh, and I want to offer congratulations to our friends at the Pacific Legal Foundation who represented Ms. Rosemary Nick. So moving on, um, we thought yesterday that after the opinions came out that, that the justices were done for the day, but later in the afternoon the court announced it will hear a group of cases dealing with the Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico. Uh, so Amy, do you want to talk a little bit about those cases? Sure. So the court here granted certain five related cases and then consolidated all of those cases. Um, so as Elizabeth noted, the question presented in all of these cases is whether the appointments clause governs the appointment of members of the Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico. Uh, so the background on this is that in 2016, Congress responded to the Puerto Rican financial crisis by creating an independent board called the Financial Oversight and Management Board. Federal law allowed President Obama to appoint those board members uh, without having to be confirmed by Congress uh, through the Appointments Clause. So Aurelius Investment is a hedge fund that invested in distressed Puerto Rico bonds uh, and challenged the appointment of the board members, as did several other entities, which is why you had five different cases going through the First Circuit here. The First Circuit's decision left no one happy. Uh, so the First Circuit ruled the, the provision unconstitutional saying, uh, no, the, these appointments could not be made without first being confirmed by Congress, uh, but it also declined to invalidate the actions already taken by the board. Uh, in so doing, it relied on the, quote, de facto officer doctrine and reasoned that reversing the board's actions would have, quote, negative consequences for the many, if not thousands of innocent third parties who have relied on the board's actions until now and would, quote, likely introduce further delay into a historic debt restructuring process that was already turned upside down by the ravage of hurricanes. So again, no one was quite happy about this. The board uh, asked the Supreme Court to review the First Circuit's decision on the appointments question, um, as did also the federal government and a committee of unsecured debtors, while Aurelius and the labor organization asked the justices to weigh in on the de facto uh, officer doctrine and whether that should apply. Um, so this case has been set for the October sitting, uh, and because there are a number of parties involved, there's a, a rather um, fractured briefing schedule depending on, on who is asking the court to review which decision under which theory. Um, so just something to keep in mind as we come into the October sitting. Um, there's a lot going on in the briefing schedule on this case.
So that's one more case or several more cases the court's going to hear next uh, next term starting in October. Well, guys, thanks for joining me. And uh, we'll, we'll be back next week with the, the final 12 decisions of the Supreme Court as it rounds out its 2018-2019 term. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. And don't forget to check out our SCOTUS 101 mug at shop.heritage.org. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.